Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. We are now in the year 1994. We're discussing the films of that year. And this episode, we're going to be starting off with five. I think I think this is the first episode of 94. I can't remember anymore. Well, Jacob and I took, well, he took a long break because uh, he was overwhelmed with work and I wasn't, but I was just kind of burnt out. But I, I, I think I recorded the episode with the kids movies with my friend Andrew. I'm trying to take some of the pressure off Jacob. Jacob has a life. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, so this, so this is, it wasn't that bad. This uh, this is the second episode of the 1994 movies. In this episode, we're discussing Clean Slate, uh, Stargate, Flintstone, Speed, and Dumb and Dumber. And Clean Slate is a first-time watch for Jacob. And what did you think of it? I feel like this definitely set up uh, the movie Memento. Like, I feel like this was definitely an influence on that movie by uh, Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I mean, and, I think it's more of a play off of Groundhog Day, though. I mean, if you look a year and a half earlier, we had Groundhog Day make a fucking fortune and get tons of critical acclaim. And there was a movie right after that called 1201 with Jonathan Silverman and Helen Shaver and where he constantly kept waking up at 1201 and trying to stop a murder. So this this pattern, it's still repeated to this day because we had, um, what is the uh, Edge of Tomorrow? It was, you know, that constant repeating thing. I swear I just watched one just the other day where they had to repeat over and over and over in order to get it right. And I can't fucking remember. It just came out too. I'll remember later. But um, this is kind of in that pattern. And I think this is the one that everybody forgot. And, and to be fair, it came out... Uh, and, and tanked horribly but I thought it was kind of a video hit it was a big hit in my house we watched this movie all the time but I've come to discover most of the people that are younger than me have no idea this movie even exists which is a shame because it's I mean, in my opinion it's Danny Carvey's best performance not best movie because it's still Wayne's World of course but this is his best performance I think <laughs> especially like first time I, what, one of the very few movies where he's the leading man yeah, well, also a lead where he got to do a little bit of drama. But most of the time, he's playing characters. He's playing a normal dude in a crazy situation. <laughs> I know, of all the situations, like, you hear the voiceover, it's got, like, this noir kind of feel, and then it's, like, just little video notes to remind himself, like, what's been going on because of a particular accident where he loses his memory every time he falls asleep. <laughs> like, like, for instance, um, I think later on in the film, like, his uh, landlord's telling him to pay rent, then he's writing a check, he's forgotten to pay rent, and then if, when he opens the door, it's not the landlord, it's the uh, crime boss trying to convince him to not testify uh, in a criminal case. Yeah. <laughs> he hands him the check, <laughs> thinking he's the landlord. <laughs> what I love uh, is that is that the game that's played in him, once he finds out what's going on, he has to kind of keep it to himself. And he's just trying to remember who people are and what they're supposed to be doing. He's always kind of confused. But I think it's funny is because the first 10 minutes is him thinking he knows what's going on and everybody else is confused and they're just kind of playing along like, what is happening now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it, that dog. That just... fucking dog is so great. <laughs> but yeah, that was like one of the first things he mentioned about that dog. He's particularly... Uh, uh, he's visually impaired and his senses are a little off. <laughs> Especially, oh gosh, when it comes to the time to like rescue Dana Carvey, he ends up lunging into the closet and getting locked in. <laughs> yeah, because his death perception's way off. Um, I just remembered the movie I was thinking of. It's called Boss Level. It's on Hulu. 
It's uh, where he's in a video game and he's constantly looping around trying to beat this level, try to get past it. He's a character oh. in the game trying to get, and he has to keep repeating over and over and over until he gets it all right. Oh gosh, that's like having an unlimited amount of lives and just an almost nearly impossible part of the game to get through. Yeah, so this, frustrating. This uh, it's from director Mick Jackson who had just come off of The Bodyguard, which is a massive hit. So this had to hurt a little bit going from a movie that made like three hundred million worldwide to one that made like eight. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a bummer. I mean, on paper, this looks like it's something that would have been the biggest movie of that month, and it just didn't connect. I mean, Dana Carvey was red hot coming off of the the Wayne's World sequels, and this year really hurt for him because this tanked, Road to Wellville tanked, which he played like kind of a, a and Dana Carvey, and then uh, Trapped in Paradise all tanked, and his movie career was over. And then his TV show came out in '96. And not necessarily tanked, but it was so controversial that ABC just said, look, you're losing all the advertisers. We're tired of all the people complaining, so we're just going to pull your show. And remember, he just disappeared for a really long time until Master of Disguise, which, Jesus Christ, I know some kids love that fucking movie. That movie's terrible. Yeah, no. I mean, when I was younger, I enjoyed it. As an adult, I'm like, What? Turtle, turtle. Got, that's all people remember from it. But it's it's barely even a movie, honestly. It's like seventy two minutes long, and it's just oh god, it's painful. But this one is a legit, <laughs> like this is a full on real movie. This is his Fletch, I would say, like you know the where he's trying to mix comedy with thriller aspects. Yeah, no, that's exactly exactly. I was just about to mention that. Yeah, it is very similar to Fletch, but and a particular part. I thought it got really silly where, you know, he's trying to keep his memory. So he's like, wait a minute. I lose my memory and fall asleep. If I don't fall asleep, boom, I don't lose my memory. <laughs> and then he starts chugging the coffee and watching all this, watching watching a loud uh, movie in the background while reading Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think the silliest for me is when he's on the stand and he has to delay it because Valerie Galino, who's amazing in this, I thought she was so good. Um, but she has to like play a tape over uh, a cell phone or whatever, or, or, or uh, a microphone to him, and he's right. trying to. And she goes stall. He goes stall, <laughs> and he goes, uh, "Is it stall possible to turn the heat in here? I'm awfully hot. Why do you have a southern accent all of a sudden? What?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man. The no, uh, no, that one, that or or funny. or when he accidentally gets on stage and he's the speaker at that uh the African uh symposium or whatever and he pulls his pants up and he's got his hair waxed over and it's just like and here you can see these people all made fun of us for going here and here and then over here and here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, like some of the background actors though, like were a bit of a surprise. Like Brian Cranston in the um. At the country club, yeah. When he was looking for, oh god, and then uh, Christopher Maroney from Law and Order. Right, right. Before yeah. he was a thing, this is like really early in his career. Yeah, I know. I'm like, because I'm like, holy shit, Damn, young Bright Cranston just has less wrinkle. Yeah, and then That's of course it. we have we have Olivia Diablo, Michael Gambon, James Earl Jones, Kevin Pollak. Um, yeah. it, it was just like a bunch of ringers in this. It is a shame that this movie has basically been forgotten. I had to send you like a digital copy of what I have because uh, I have the olive Blu-ray, and it's just you know it's really expensive. I think it's out of print now. So, oh, yeah. There's yeah. some of these MGM movies that are just gone now. The Sure Thing with John Cusack and Daphne Zuniga. 
You, you can't find it anywhere unless it's like 80 bucks used. No way. Uh, no, oh, God, no. I was like, I love the movie, but it's like, oh, that much. Well, honestly, summary releases that are getting, coming out, like Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer are coming out on Blu-ray. I'm definitely buying those. Yeah. Um, sadly, there's, also, no, there's no special features, though. That's the thing that bums me. A lot of these, like, Olive Pictures put out Clean Slate, and it has, like, I don't think you should be able to count a trailer as a special feature. That seems fucking bullshit. No, uh-uh, no. It's like, that's why there's a trailer. You know, in most menus, there's a trailer section. Yeah, it's just, you know? th- that's and, not a special feature. Or, or it'll say, like, notes. And, like, no, without production notes. Give me a commentary. Give me uh, making of an interview. Something, anything. Exactly. Give me give me a little episodes of, a, of the cartoon spinoff. Yeah. Beetlejuice did that. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I was very upset when, uh, not Criterion. Yeah, Criterion put out Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and they didn't add any of the episodes of the TV show. There's only seven episodes. You could have just collected them all up. It doesn't matter the quality. Just save these these episodes. I was hoping that Arrow was going to do it. Arrow over in England, they do a much better. Their, their Robocop and Waterworld are unbelievable. Oh, yeah, no, the Arrow ones. I think those are the ones. Oh, no, wait, no, Shout Factory. I'm thinking yeah. of Shout Factory. Well, mind. Shout Factory and Arrow are kind of like similar in their mindset where they're just trying to get as much as possible as they can pack onto one of those discs. But yeah, um, so hopefully. The amazing. Olive is basically done, so hopefully another studio will pick up Clean Slate and maybe get you know the cast together to discuss this movie because it's worth saving. It, I, I think it's a fine film, even though it bombed. For, oh no, for real! I mean, even like some of the movies that have been like you know good critical acclaim, yeah, end up not making a bunch of money. But it's like that doesn't mean they're failures as film. Yeah. And also, one more thing I want to say about this movie: Kevin Pollak, when he realizes that, <laughs> oh, in court, it was David Carvey was the one sleeping with his fiance. oh gosh all hell is freaking in that court <laughs> just jumps over that starts strangling him <laughs> <laughs> and then boom it was that knock on the head that gets his memory back yeah yeah um our second <laughs> film is what oh gosh dumb and dumber oh this was a classic growing up easily yeah <laughs> When this came out, <laughs> I'm older than you, so I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. But there was this kid, uh, like Theodore or something. I can't remember his name, but he was a weird kid. He kept insisting the movie was called Dump and Dumper. And I go, what the fuck does that even mean? It's dumb and dumber. And he goes, no, it's Dump and Dumper. I go, tell me what Dumper is. Tell me what the fuck those mean. And he just kept insisting it was not Dumb and Dumber. And, and we're all just like amazed. He had like 10 people telling him it was Dumb and Dumber and he still went back off. Oh my God, did this guy do this on purpose? Fuck I don't know. Guy? I almost wonder if it was some sort of comedic thing. He was just fucking with us because that is the epitome of Dumb and Dumber. Absolutely. Woo! Oh gosh. I know the frustration is like, yeah, I don't have time to argue with you. You don't want to argue with me. Let me eat my lunch in peace. Uh, what I love <laughs> about this movie, and this is this I think is my... It's got to be at least bare minimum, like, top three uh, Jim Carrey movie. It might be Cable Guy's my favorite. Uh, This is the first time we had really seen him um, as a sad character. Like, I know most of it is 90% silly, but when he talks to Jeff Daniels in their apartment, and he says, like, with a tear in his eye, he goes, I'm tired of eking my way through life. I want to do something important, and that's why they go to uh, Aspen. Um, I was like, oh, Oh shit, he's got some chops here. He's not just this silly goofball that we had seen in so many movies. I mean, The Mask, yes, it was getting there, but eh, it, Dumb and Dumber is really the one that cemented it for me. Oh gosh, absolutely. And, but again, coming from Jim Carrey and like how silly he was earlier, it was almost it was hard 
uh, not to notice that serious streak, as you just mentioned. I mean, he had done <laughs> he had done a drama on Fox called like Doing Time on Maple Drive, where I believe his character had HIV and got good notices for that, but no one really saw that. So I, I never saw it either. So I don't know. Maybe the director saw something in with that, but. This also brought Def Jeff Daniels back. Everybody thought that Jeff Daniels, when he got tapped, he had been doing really good work up through the 80s. And when he got tapped to star in Arachnophobia for Spielberg, I think people assumed that he was going to be like, you know, the way the, the, the Jaws did for Roy Scheider, like that was going to be for him. And then the, like the next three years was just a disaster for him. But then he played a very pivotal, like supporting role in Speed, and then Dumb and Dumber, and just... What I was reading into it is Jeff Daniels was the only one who came in that had good chemistry because everybody either backed off and were afraid to play with Jim Carrey, like just let him rule it, or they tried to dominate Jim Carrey. You know, they tried to go over him or whatever, trying to prove something, and only he and Jeff Daniels really worked well together. <laughs> well, you know, that's really great to know. I mean, especially like trying to top Jim Carrey. Kind of like it's basically the chemistry you see with um, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. Right. Like when yeah. it came to creating Bill and Ted. Yeah. I mean, they're just a perfect pairing. That, and, and Jeff Daniels has no fucking fear of embarrassing himself. Jim Carrey, <laughs> Jim Carrey is already known. Like, But Jeff Daniels was kind of a serious actor. And he's just acted. I mean, in part two, I'm telling you right now, part two is nowhere nearly as good, obviously. But when he is digging around in his butt, trying to stink palm the, you know, because he's gonna hand a stinky beer over to the guy or whatever, he's going at it like he has no qualms about just doing that on camera. And that's why I fucking love that diarrhea scene is an all timer. If he was embarrassed in any way whatsoever, it would not have worked. No, just that little, yeah, that little like, <laughs> that, like yelping groan <laughs> that he makes as he's. I, it's the squeak and giggle. Do you remember when he's completely done all of a sudden? <laughs> and then she says oh, yeah. the toilet doesn't work and the panic, the fucking panic on his face. Oh, God, I know. It's just hilarious. Oh, better yet, when they're at the gas station, his foot catches on fire. Oh, yeah, and he's so mad. He's like, just give me your number! For God's sake, just give me the number! <laughs> they're so good. There's so many lines. It's like uh, kick his ass. I mean, we watched this in college all the time. Kick his ass, uh, sea bass. Um, check out the butt on that one. Yeah, he must work out. Uh, it's the shagging wagon. <laughs> just when you thought, I, just when I thought you couldn't do anything, dumber, you totally redeem yourself. I'm <laughs> <laughs> better yet. Uh, God, you know, right at the end of the part where they sting, uh, the FBI comes in and raids and captures. Oh God. He was formerly on SNL. What oh, yeah, name? Charles Rocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, like when they do that little sting operation, like, Jim Car- <laughs> I love how, like, his mood completely changes when Jim Carrey asks him, like, what if he shot you in the face? <laughs> you know, in regards to the bulletproof vest. And then he finally asks, what if he shoots me in the face? And she just quietly says, that's a risk we were willing to take. <laughs> I love when he's like, she touched my leg. He goes, kill him! <laughs> <laughs> And then he just immediately gets sad after he realizes his friend's been shot. <laughs> uh, our pet's heads are falling off! <laughs> God damn it, Sue is so fucking quarterable. Everybody in it is so good. Karen Duffy, Mike Starr, like you said, Charles Rocket, Lauren Hawley. Lauren Hawley's confusion and amusement at some of the stuff that they would do is so wonderful. I'm trying to remember who else is in this. Um, 
I guess that's about all the main characters. Uh, and of course, we established something that would bounce to the next two movies is Freda Felcher. Yeah, that's right. Oh, God, they actually did capitalize. I feel like um, Dumberer was a little bit retconned. Yeah, it was, because we just did Dumb and Dumberer for uh, the show that me and Mindy do, We Got the Beat. And we were talking about that, how they're like, oh, well, at the end of this, they show that she has, like, a twin sister, and that, you know, everything worked out. I was like, that's not what they were really saying in the first movie. And then the third movie completely overrides that. Right. I mean, because it wasn't the Fairly Brothers who did Dumb and Dumberer. It was no, no. different people. Yeah, it was the guy from Mr. Show, uh, Troy Miller. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, that movie, I, I think I've only seen it, like, once, but I remember how ridiculous it being. I'm like, I, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I think they do a, a pretty good job of capturing the magic of the first movie, and the performers are fine. It's just the story sucks. Like, a lot of the jokes just hit the fucking wall because the context just doesn't work. And the second one, I think, is overly hated. I think there's a couple really grown, stunningly bad jokes in that. But all in all, I think it, it was a fun watch. I had a good time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I don't hate the second one as much as some people do. But the part, like, at the end, uh, that a friend of mine uh, mentioned, like, the part where they didn't even know what sex was. Like, what? <laughs> 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 which also undermines the Dumb and Dumber 2 because they had sex with Freda Felcher, right? Cause, or they thought they did because that girl they thought was their daughter. I can't remember now. I gotta watch Yes, that. oh God. They thought, Lloyd thought that one girl was his daughter, but it ended up being uh, their dead friend, Stain. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I was trying to think. The uh, Jim Carrey really had a hard time. Well, he didn't have a hard time. The studios had a hard time getting sequels successful sequels to all of his hits because if you think about it the only one that was really successful was or have been the ones that he showed up in which is um ace ventura 2 uh, when nature calls and then dumb and dumber 2 of course didn't make as much money as the first movie but you know it still made a decent amount of money but they tried with the mask the you know dumb and dumber uh when harry met lloyd uh evan almighty i feel like there's another one in there where they tried to do a sequel and it just doesn't work Right. No. Oh God. Especially the mask sequel. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's good and enjoyable if you're a kid, but oh, good God, it didn't hold up at all. Yeah, and we're gonna talk about the mask in the next episode, so we'll, we'll discuss what went wrong with that and or what was wrong with the sequel. But um, what is our next film? Okay, our next film. You did just mention it. Also with Jeff Daniels, Speed. Oh my God, this movie's still so fucking good. I saw this in the theater and was just absolutely wowed by it. Here's a story I heard uh, from a friend of mine who's like an action guru. He, he knows action movies in and out. Keanu Reeves right. was not the first person um, offered this role. Now, that's not a new thing. Hundreds of movies that we love have actors that were previously attached to it and just didn't work out. But do you know who martial artist Jeff Speakman is? Jeff Speakman? He had one minor hit called The Perfect Weapon. He was known for stick fighting and like really short, quick moves. He had like a beard. He was a really good looking guy, a little bland, but he was he had a hit, and I don't know what the fuck happened. But Speed was offered to him after The Perfect Weapon. And his producer controlled his career and ultimately destroyed his career because he said we will only do Speed if he gets off the bus from time to time to have martial arts sequences. And they're like... <laughs> What? First off, there's only one villain, and two, he's not really... I mean, yes, he does get off the bus, but he, he can't just continually get off the bus. That's the point of the movie, is that they're stuck. And so he lost the role, and then it's, it went from Paramount over to Fox, 
and then that's when uh, you know everything that we know came together. Right, and that was a good decision because that just would have made it seem like that whole getting off the bus multiple times, even though it's not supposed to yeah. at all. But if they had kept uh, it the way it was, Jeff Speakman could be a could have been a big star instead of like his next movie was for Canon, not not Paramount. It was like yeah, that's what it said. It felt like a Canon Golden Globus movie. Yeah, honestly, if he had to get off the bus constantly. Yeah, and his career was just over by that point. But uh, Keanu, this whenever I see people when they were talking about this movie, they said it was his first action movie. I'm like, you guys have really short memories because three years ago he did Point Break, one of the greatest action movies of all time. Huh? Exactly. What the hell are they talking? It about? It was from the same studio too. Fox put out Point Break or Point Break. I don't understand how they fucking did that. I know, <laughs> yeah. but hey, it did it did do great not only just for Keanu Reeves but for Sandra Bullock as well. Oh yeah, made her a star after this. I mean, her performance is fantastic. When she hits that baby cart, you truly believe that she is destroyed because she thinks she killed a baby. Yes, and then it turns out it just it was a bunch of cans. I was freaking out for a second. I'm like, what? Yeah. The uh, like, oh. And, and I remember they were talking about how they were shocked that Keanu Reeves shaved his head. Uh, not shaved it, but buzzed it down because at the right. time he was known for, you know, pretty long hair. And that was the trend. We were still at the very edge of hair metal and we're going into grunge. People still had long hair. Speed and Mission Impossible changed everything. All of a sudden, uh, and George Clooney, uh, you know, those three had very short hair instead of big fluffy hair. And all of a sudden, that was the new trend for the rest of the decade was short, spiky hair. That lasted a really long time now that I think about it. Like 20 years, people, like in their you know late teens, early 20s, were all cutting their hair short. Right, yes. No, I mean, that's, I mean, it's still like a general style, like, throughout any decade. But yes, as you're mentioning, you know, going into the 90s, yeah, everyone was with like long, grungy, you know, hair. Yeah, I mean, if you look just before this, uh, you know, Mel Gibson's mullet was standard, uh, uh, hard target. You know, uh, fucking uh, uh, Steven Seagal, they all had long hair, and oh god, I don't, yeah, I don't think, yes, I don't, Stallone and I guess Stallone and Schwarzenegger did it, but they did it specifically for a, a particular role, not during that, you know, because of an era. But um, yeah, I forgot what I was saying now. Damn it! Yeah, Dolph Lundgren <laughs> only did like. Uh, certain roles of long hair. Yeah, I think he only did it for Johnny Mnemonic and Masters of the Universe. Uh, everything else was short hair. But yeah, it kind of it, it set a trend too because they they sold this as Die Hard on a bus, and it's absolutely positively not that at all. No. But what's funny is after this, you would get a few movies that were speed on a you know whatever like Chill Factor. Do you remember that movie with Cuba Gooding Jr.? Chill Factor. It's the one where there's a bomb and it has to stay cold, and they they they're transporting it in an ice cream truck, and him and Skeet Ulrich have to get away from terrorists who are trying to get the bomb back, and they can't let the bomb get above a certain temperature or it'll blow up. It's it's basically Speed Three. Oh, uh, okay. Wow. Yeah. No, I don't remember that one. Yeah, Dennis Hopper is the villain in this, and this was a big comeback for him because. In 86, he did four movies, all phenomenal performances. He won the Oscar, and then he faded away. Do you remember he barely did any movies? They were always small. He was mostly directing. And all of a sudden, everybody saw Dennis Hopper and said, holy fucking shit, this is like, you know, the go-to bad guy for a few years there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this particular performance. And his motivation definitely for this, uh, in this movie, was revenge. Like, after the first operation, you know, beginning of the movie they're trying to defuse the bomb threat in a building on an elevator and 
course, he takes that personally after it fails. Because, you know, Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels are the ones who thwarted him. Yeah. And you remember Pop Quiz Hot Shot was a fucking thing that you would hear all the time after this. Oh, God, yes. That's where it really derived from. Yeah. Damn it, man. The, uh, <laughs> you did, Dennis Hopper. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first movie from Jean Debont, who was a cinematographer on Lethal Weapon 3, to bring that up. Um, oh. Uh, and he had two real big hits right in a row, this and Twister, and then things went to shit when he made Speed 2. I know there's a, it has a, a very minor cult following. I think it's mostly because it was so hated at the time and such a huge flop. There's some people who were willing to forgive it. I don't think it's anywhere nearly as good as this, and I don't think it's a good movie. It's, it's passable. But the fuck-up decisions they made were so bad. I just... What the... F- Look, if, if Keanu's not going to show up, then you don't you, you don't fucking do it. You just don't fucking do it. Right. I mean, as far as, like, sequels, yeah, I don't remember Keanu doing too much other than Bill and Ted. And, uh, oh, gosh, what was another movie? Yeah, well, he wasn't sequel-happy back then. Now, the last ten years, he wants to revisit these characters that he loved. You know, The Matrix and, and, and uh, John Wick, is he's sequel, you know, heavy for that. And, oh, and yeah. Bill and Ted. I feel like yeah, he wants to... He wants to do Constantine again. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That was the other sequel. I want to see a sequel uh, to Point Break, honestly. I had uh, an idea that maybe Brody and... uh, What's the girl that's in that again? Oh, uh, oh, gosh. Why am I blanking her name? Not Laura Prepon. No, uh, Laura Petty. Um, Laura Laura Petty, that's it. They had a kid together and then, like, say, to twist things, he's a, a cop that goes undercover in a situation like what happened in the first movie because of his experience with, you know, surfing and stuff like that. And then he gets into trouble and they need to bring, you know, Johnny Utah out of retirement and back into the field. Like, say he's just, you know, he's older and he's just in the in the office all the time filling out paperwork and he's bored and he's excited to go back into the field. And then he <laughs> yeah, feels no, like he, owned, cool. he owes, you know, Bodie uh, a debt, you know, and this is how he's kind of paying back his debt. Exactly. I mean, heck, he did let Bodie go at the end of that movie to get yeah, that last yeah. wave. So, yeah, that'd be something to see. I would love to see a, a sequel to that. But, yeah, this, uh, it's just Jason Patrick was nowhere nearly as good. Setting on a boat, a slow fucking boat, was boring as hell. It was supposed to be on a train. It was, and things got delayed, and all of a sudden Under Siege 2 decided it was going to be on a train, so they scrapped that idea. No, oh, gosh, I mean, Under Siege 2 was a failure. Yeah, and and it just destroyed John DeBond's career. Yes, The Haunting did okay, but, you know, nowhere nearly as much as what they had hoped. And then uh, his last film was three years later with, um, or four years later with uh, Tomb Raider. And oh, yeah. It? Oh, wow. Cradle, no, it's the second one, the, the Cradle of Life or something like that. Yeah, there was the first one. The first one was pretty decent. The second one, I don't know. I can't remember. The no, I thought it was good. Much. It's just it, nobody wanted to see it, so it tanked horribly. He was supposed to do Minority Report. I don't know why he wasn't able to do that. But yeah, his career, he, he only did like five movies, and that was it. And I think it's a shame because Speed shows you true, unbelievable talent. Oh, absolutely. And just nonstop action. It was just freaking intense. I'm trying to remember the damn name of the guy. I even met him. When I was in Monterey, damn it. He wrote this, and then he wrote Broken Arrow and Hard Rain. And I thought he had a, he was a really good writer. Uh, fuck, I have to look it up because I feel bad. But uh, while I looked it up, uh, what is the next film we're going to discuss? I feel like the next film we should discuss, let's see. Oh, yeah, Stargate. Um, I like the TV show more than the movie. But I, I, I do enjoy the movie. Um, the writer was Graham Yost. I couldn't remember. Um. Yeah, Roland Emmerich directed it, of course, from Independence Day, and, oh 
Yeah. Well, this is before that. His he had yes. done a bunch of German movies, um, with like American actors. He did Moon Forty Four with uh, Michael Pere and Malcolm McDowell, which is a lot of fun. I shouldn't say fun. It's dark and grimy. Um, where uh, te- teenage geniuses team up with prisoners, whatever, on another planet, fighting over the rights of this moon, like the the mineral rights. Um, oh. It's like the Dirty Dozen kind of thing. Uh, and then because of that, uh, uh, was it Carol Cole noticed him and they hired him for Universal Soldier, and of course that was a big hit. And so they basically wrote him a check, like, hey, just do whatever the fuck you want. And they came up with this crazy movie. It was the first time I think a sci-fi movie really had a fresh mythology, like something you had never, ever seen before. But tapping into something that we already had in our history, you know, the, the pyramids and the whole Egyptian uh, gods and stuff like that. And it's one of the freshest takes in sci-fi I think I've ever seen. It, it's oh, so ab- unique, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. That's what I was going to agree with you on that, like tapping into, I mean... Uh, James Spader's character is an Egyptologist and uh, archaeologist, and he's trying to prove that particular theory of the Stargate. And of course, he got laughed at, just like in Disney's Atlantis. Almost, they're, they're almost the same character. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, and then there was one particular benefactor who, of course, uh, revealed him that it was true. His theories were right. And then, of course, cutting to Kurt Russell's character. Oh, gosh. You already see it in his face. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, a, it's a broken moment. And it, it pays uh, off later. What a wonderful a what a wonderful character for him. I mean, I don't mean that in a happy... But for him to get that depth. And this is the different era for Kurt Russell because, you know, in the 80s, he was kind of a silly redneck. Um, but the 90s really, like, repositioned him as, like, an all-American kind of, like, dad. Exactly, yeah. He's definitely that type of person. And, um, yeah, again, he's just being reactivated, getting involved with this particular project, taking over. So he kind of does butt heads a little bit with uh, James Spader. Because James Spader's like, of course, you know, once they find they activate and go through the Stargate to this other planet that, you know, has pyramids and obelisks, he's, like, excited and really trying to figure this all out. And yet, you know, the military approach from Kurt Russell. You know, he yeah. wants to, like, you know, he sees it as a threat. Right, right. You know, his is all he about... The, it, his his is more offensive, plans. you know? It's, it's... Or maybe defensive. But, yeah, it's it's the juxtaposition of, like, the peaceful scientific mind and the uh, wary military mind. Exactly. Of course, that does change later on throughout the movie. Yeah. And, thankfully, he was brought along because that was needed. Especially how it tied in with the Egypt, the Egyptian mythology of Ra, and of course Ra ended up being, you know, an alien, parasitic. It's basically, it's, 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 don't you think this is what started Scientology? They just read this book and went with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's funny as you think about a lot of the uh, action movies. 1994 might be the greatest year of action movies of all time because everything just really hit it on the head. And I remember being a teenager and watching this and being a little bored because it focuses so much on building their world and the characters. And the action is a little minimal. Now I'm, I'm completely fine. I'm a fucking adult and I have the attention span for it. But um, <laughs> but also, like, they they had a talent. Roland Emmerich and uh, what, the, what the fuck's the other guy? The guy that was a, an actor, became a writer, and now directs all the time. Uh, Dean Devlin. Um 
they didn't have the biggest budget in the world because Carol Cole was suffering quite a bit financially, so they only put $55 million into this. But God, it looks like $100 million. I mean, and this is what got them hired for Independence Day is because they did Independence Day on $65 million fucking dollars. They just know how to make a movie look great on a minimal budget. And what bums me out now is Roland Emmerich feels like every movie now has to ditch the characters and focus on spectacle and cost like $150 million. I still haven't seen the last few like Midway and Moonfall and stuff like that. But God, he has got to stop doing the fucking disaster movies and go back to building worlds, man. I want to see more sci-fi from him. Exactly, I know. It's like, okay, you already had Independence Day Day After Tomorrow. That's all you need. Yeah, well, and Godzilla is almost a disaster movie. Oh, which one? Godzilla is almost a a disaster movie because it basically destroys New York. It has the same sensibility. Yes. You know, that's actually a good point. Yeah, and... I, I, like I said, I appreciate the show more, but it's, be, it's because I get to spend more time with the characters. If Caracol had not gone out of business, I believe that there would have been more Stargate movies. And MGM bought the rights, and I think they were looking at, well, this cost 55 it only made 70 in America. That's when we were obsessed with just box office in America, but it made 150 worldwide. These days, you would have a Stargate trilogy already set up, like a Stargate universe, you know? And oh, absolutely. Because now we're more focused on international sales and, and post, you know, uh, theatrical sales. And so MGM bought the rights to Stargate after Caracol went out of business. And uh, I'm trying to remember. So there was Stargate, which was on for 10 years. It was the number one show in the world for a while. The world. Yeah, SG, yeah, SG-1. Yeah. I mean, again, Kurt Russell's character continues, but he's played by... Uh, the actor who played MacGyver. Right, Richard Dean Anderson. Yes, Richard Dean Anderson. Played by him. That carries on. And yeah. Christopher Judge. That was the first time I'd seen Christopher Judge. And my God, does that guy deserve so many more roles. Yeah. When, when, speaking of Stargate, whenever I get grumpy, I give Teal'c face. <laughs> Which, if you've seen Teal'c in that, he just looks like his face is locked in a like grumpy... <laughs> like a very judgy face. Like, yeah, it's like Sam the Eagle on the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah. yeah, so they had that. They had uh, Stargate Atlantis, which lasted five years. Stargate Universe, which lasted two. Stargate Origins, which was a miniseries. Uh, Stargate Infinity, I believe, is the cartoon that was on for a year. There was Stargate Games, Stargate Toys, Stargate Comics. I mean, for a 10-year period there, it was a phenomenon. And it's weird because if you ask kids now, I don't even know if anybody under 20 knows what the fuck Stargate is. Yeah, no, it hasn't really stayed around as long. If there was some way to continue it, or like bring it back on a streaming service, especially you know on Amazon Prime, considering they own MGM. Yeah, they have it within their catalog. I wouldn't be surprised if they did a legacy sequel because legacy sequels are all the hot rage right now. Uh, doing yes. a legacy sequel with a whole new cast going over, but also having like Kurt Russell and James Spader do supporting roles in it. Exactly. Yes. You you know having them pass the torch. Well, and since they can go through these time spaces and alternate worlds, it doesn't eliminate the fact that the other Stargate exists either. I mean, you can still have it happen because it's you know, sci-fi. You can wiggle the rules. Exactly. They can be bendable. The, uh, the final film that we're going to discuss is... Uh, Flintstones. Okay. Meet the Flintstones. <laughs> I was like, why am I blanking on the uh, big yeah. song? Well, I think he... I think you were surprised for me, uh, me to just throw that at you too. Um, no, not really. No, I was, I was, I was literally blanking. I'm like, what oh. the fuck? Wait, wait, that's Jetsons. Wrong theme song. I'm I am in my head. still <laughs> shocked 
that they have not been able to make a Jetsons live-action movie. It seems like it's just an obvious... Richard Ro- uh, Robert Rodriguez tried for years, and it's just never happened. I think even at one point they got um, Katy Perry was going to play Judy Jetson, and it just didn't happen. But that seems like an obvious... Flintstones... Like, this made a fuck ton of money. An insane amount of money. I know it was a very, very troubled production. And that they had, like, I think a, a 35 writers. Not all of them, of course, are credited. I think like six or seven. What? They had a, a total of 35 writers going at this script. I don't think it's... This is a hot take. I don't think The Flintstones is necessarily as good as the sequel. I really like Viva Las Vegas because it's very, very focused. And the writers... There's only two writers, so it's all a very cohesive, streamlined concept from beginning to end. And I just think the first one is a little muddled because they're trying to fit in everything. And that's it. I thought it was a bit rough. Yeah, it just seemed too focused on the world building. I mean, it, again, it was Universal, I think they do mention it on their backlight. They still have some of the buildings up. Last I checked on their tour, when I went on the tour a few years ago. Yeah. But again, Growing up with the old Flintstones cartoon and then having a live action and being a John Candy fan. No. John Goodman. John Goodman. Yeah. Oh, God. Wrong John. But, hey. Well, he's with Rick Moranis, so you can kind of see where you could get confused. (laughs) Pretty much. Of course. I mean, they've all worked. They have worked together. But, anyway. Yes, John Goodman is absolutely fantastic as Fred. You know, top notch. You know, he's got the build. He's got the attitude. Down easily. Yeah, Everybody was I was. Cast. I was kind of surprised when they announced the rest of the cast. To tell you the truth, I really did not expect Rick Moranis. He's got the voice perfect, but I always saw that he was going to be stockier. In my head, I just had that plain. And of course, Rosie O'Donnell. She got a lot of grief because, you know, the, the nickname, especially in the surfer so- SoCal world, was a Betty was you know from Betty Rubble, and she was totally smoking hot. And nothing wrong with Rosie O'Donnell, in my opinion, but that's my taste. Um, but I remember she got a lot of shit for that because she wasn't built like the Betty in the cartoon, and I thought that was unfair. Of course, yeah. They went against typecasting, I guess, with um, Betty. But yeah, no. Freaking Rosie O'Donnell, again, always loved her growing up. And again, she did a phenomenal job. She had the voice and the laugh down and everything. Yeah, yeah. And Liz Taylor <laughs> as Wilma's mom. <laughs> oh, my God. She, oh god, she always kills her scenes. She was a bit of a stealer there. Oh my god, the the the, the fleeing the constant insults at Fred, putting him down, and the banter between and the the fighting the fighting banter between the two. Uh huh. Oh gosh, and then that one scene where she kisses his ass because he gets uh, promoted. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, the, the like, whole uh, the whole setup is uh, what's the what's the company name? Slate. Slate. I was I almost said Sprockets, but that's from Jetsons. But it's that he gets set up to be the fall guy for, you know, a, a position that he doesn't even know what the fuck he's doing. And they're embezzling all this money under his name and making him take the fall. And I, I thought it was just so funny. To this day, I, I know it's an easy joke, but I thought it was so funny that Holly Berry plays Sharon Stone. <laughs> but, you know, not that Sharon Stone. A different Sharon Stone. Yeah, her name is Miss Stone. Yeah. That's and all it is. Who's the bad guy? Oh, Kyle McLaughlin, I think, is a wonderfully sleazy. Who I don't think he'd ever played a bad guy before this. He was always known for playing like a cop or a goody, like, you know, nice guy next door. But I think he does a fun job as a villain. Oh, absolutely. I feel like he was able to have fun with this particular role. And you can definitely see it in this performance. Yeah. And I, oh, think, gosh. I think with the exception of this and uh, what's the uh, Portlandia is like the only time he ever got to do comedy. 
Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, Twin Peaks and everything, yeah, it was always just like very serious, dramatic roles. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't forget Blue Velvet, another Dennis Hopper film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, dude. Elizabeth first, Perkins yeah. as uh, Wilma. I think. I think that her role was thankless. I think she's a really good actress, but she didn't get much to work with at all in this. I, I thought that was a shame. Yeah, no, because Wilma was more of a stay-at-home mom, but she did help out big time by, uh, you know, being more of the brains of the family and getting the dick to bird with, who with, had all the evidence against uh, Kyle MacLachlan's character. Yeah, my God, the special effects, the production value. Oh, you can see Spielberg all over this. I have never seen a production at this time, and this includes Jurassic Park. That was this so elaborate. Just everything, you look around and it's just this big open world with tons and tons and tons of sight gags. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, again, like uh, all, with all the animatronics, bringing all those big dinosaurs to life, you know, the actual... Or no, and then, of course, this was like early CG, so we got to see Dino and a few other things. Yeah. I mean, it's CG. It's early CG, so you just kind of have to deal with the fact that it doesn't look 100% convincing. But they do a good mix between that and practical effects. But it's just the fact that they built this whole city out in the middle of the desert. I, I knew a guy at the library I used to go to who visited the set. And he said it was just, it's like everything you see was there. Which is unlike now, well, people are in a fucking room where it's just like, oh, wear this suit with dots all over in a room and just stare at nothing. <laughs> yeah. And it was also nice to see uh, William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, you know, have cameos of this as well, because, you know, it was their cartoon. Yeah. And is this, this is kind of the, during that revival, do you remember when there was kind of a nostalgic revival for Hanna-Barbera? Because not only were they kind of revisiting their old series, they were doing new ones, like Pirates of Dark Water and stuff like that. It's kind of like the last time, like that two or three year period there where everybody was like, oh, hey, we're going to launch Boomerang or uh, uh, Cartoon Network because people want to see these old cartoons. And, and just revisiting that world. I, I, How many Hanna-Barbera cartoons have actually had movies? That's what I'm curious about. Because there's Yogi Bear. There was Top there's Cat. Top Cat, but that was a Mexican production, which kind of made for their audience. For some reason, Top Cat's huge in Mexico. Um, this. Uh, uh, Josie and the Pussycats. And Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, thank you. Just trying to, oh, they tried to do... Remember they tried to do the uh, Hong Kong Fu with Eddie Murphy, and they did... Uh, test footage which I thought was fantastic but they decided not to go forward with it it's, I feel like their era is done and it's kind of a shame the only time we see it now is when it's like ironic like with Harvey Birdman and stuff like that yes and then of course there was Underdog I think that was by Disney uh, I thought Underdog was Jay Ward I'm pretty sure that's Jay Ward oh. yeah but uh, I just remembered another one okay so does Smurfs count because yes Smurfs existed in the book but the popularity and what we know about the characters like Smurfette was created by Hanna-Barbera. And those were the live-action movies like decades later. I feel like that should be counted as well. Huh. Probably. I would I would like to... Honestly, I would like to think so. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious. And then, of course, we had the revivals on TV. We had the, the Flintstone kids, uh, the pup named Scooby-Doo. The Jetsons had come back. Well, there was that live-action Jetson movie, if you remember, in 1990. Um... So yeah, it's just Hanna-Barbera was so ubiquitous for decades. You would even see that little logo with the swirling comet. Bing! Yes. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, no, that was... Okay, that's a classic logo. I can't forget that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's it. I don't think there's anything else you want to say. Is there anything else you want to say before we go? Um, no, no, nothing really. I mean, 
looking when I was looking at some of the reviews though, like overall on Rotten Tomatoes for the Flintstones, I'm like, what? Oh no, I was uh, in high school at this time working at McDonald's, and I remember the reviews were horrible. As an adult, oh, yeah. as an adult, even back then, well, I guess 17's almost adult. I wasn't that into it. I I enjoy what they were trying to do, but I think it's kind of a mess. Maybe a little bit because, as you said, they're too much focusing a lot on the world building and the embezzlement theme. I'm like, oh, that is a little bit out of Flintstones, but it's like you not got to send her. You have to have a particular central plot for a movie to work. Yeah, I just think the second one's a little more streamlined, for more focused. There's not extra stuff you really don't need. Part of it's because they wanted to cut the budget. Because I think the first Flintstones cost seventy, and the second one cost fifty, and that's mind you, like a six year difference. So they couldn't really have a lot of extra stuff in it. And I can't wait to revisit the sequel when we get to year 2000. Um, but yeah, it's, it's some movies, I think we get blinded by nostalgia. Because for me, I know that Monster Squad has a lot of flaws. But I saw it at a very particular age, and I absolutely fell in love with it. So, I mean, I can let that go. Yeah, I can get a kick out of it as an adult now. Yeah. But, um, um, okay. There's one thing I do want to mention. Harvey Corman, who voiced Gazoo in... The original series right. was the voice of the Dicta Bird, and he also shows up in the sequel too. He was Wilma's dad. Okay, because I remember Alan Cumming plays the Great Gazoo in the sequel. Yes, and Alan Cumming does a fantastic job. I can't hate him in any role at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Nightcrawler. Night, Nightcrawler gives you a, a free pass for a long time. Oh, absolutely, dude! He was fantastic as, as Nightcrawler. You know, he definitely, you know, set a standard for that character on screen. Yeah. Um, he played it perfectly. And also, mm-hmm. oh, God, Goldeneye. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. yeah, I forgot he was that. <laughs> oh, gosh, his little line, you know, I'm invincible. Oh, <laughs> gosh, quote him and make fun of and say that shit constantly as a kid. Oh, All right, so the next episode is going to be, and I think I have another brand new one that you've never seen before, but it's going to be Airheads. Legends of the Fall, The Mask, Forrest Gump, and Radio Land Murders, the one basically forgotten George Lucas production. Radio Land Murders. Yeah, it's set at an old-timey 1930s radio show, and people in the cast are getting killed, and they're trying to find out who is doing it. And it's one of these things that's so loaded to the gills with, hey, I know that guy, oh, that guy's good too. That kind of movie, and it's a lot of fun, it's really wacky, it didn't make a fucking dying it got tanked so bad and it basically got thrown away and I, I can't wait for you to watch it I'll definitely have to watch this now for sure I'm looking at the I'm looking at the cast itself I'm like so many people Robert Walden Bobcat Goldthway Brian Benben Mary Stuart Masterson that shit a whole lot of people yeah and it's just it's the George uh, Lucas production that no one gave a shit about they're just like well we're filling out a contract with them whatever just throw it out there you know <laughs> Right. It's like, let's just get this over with kind of project. <laughs> All right. So that is it. You know where to find us. You've been listening to the show long enough. If you can't, I mean, you found this episode, right? So, you know, your podcast host. That's where we are is Hit Rewind. And that is everybody. Uh, Jacob, send us out. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Enjoy the new year. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Namaste and good luck. And be excellent to each other. <laughs> <laughs>